Today on the Almond Journey podcast. The thing that surprised me is how much the local wells groundwater came up purely from my neighbor and I doing this sample along with the rain. I'm sure it was a portion of both the rain and our project, but I was really surprised at how much the groundwater came up. Groundwater Recharge with almond grower Eric Speicher. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance the almond industry. In today's episode, we head out to Belico, California, to visit with third-generation almond grower Eric Speicher. Eric farms alongside his brother Kurt and their father in the Belico and Delhi areas between Turlock and Atwater. His grandparents settled there in the 1930s from Switzerland and started growing almonds around the late 40s or early 50s. This past year, the Turlock Irrigation District and a group called Sustainable Conservation approached Eric and a couple other growers in the area to collaborate on a groundwater recharge project. Today, Eric's going to share the impressive results they've seen from this work, how the project got started, what made his 40-acre orchard where he tried this a good fit for groundwater recharge, what reservations he had, and how everything has turned out so far. He also offers some great ideas for the future that apply to both growers and irrigation districts alike throughout the state. Also, stay tuned to the end of the episode for an ABC update for more information about groundwater recharge. But first, Eric Speicher shares how his project with the Turlock Irrigation District and Sustainable Conservation came to be. It's another grower and, and myself in our uh, little area of Belico here that got a call from Turlock Irrigation District from our canal tender saying that there was going to be a lot of stormwater runoff from the Mustang Creek project. And they were hoping to use that water on parcels that were designed for it to uh, recharge the groundwater. And the particular parcel that, that we had that was set up for it is a parcel of almonds that we used to flood irrigate, but since uh, water's gotten tight, we've converted it to micro sprinklers. However, the valves were still there, so we were able to uh, go ahead and reflood it for what they were looking for. And when you say parcels designed for it, is that what you mean? Is the valves were there? Yeah, it's it's level ground, and it has uh, flood valves right off the Highline Canal. So it was, and I say level, it was perfectly level to irrigate in the past. But since we replanted it, we put micro sprinklers in, so it's. It's not quite the same as it used to be to irrigate, but we are able to spread the water out somewhat evenly. This particular parcel does not have a well and it doesn't use any groundwater. It's surface water only. So we're happy to help our irrigation district with the knowledge, but it's as far as us gaining anything from it, we do have parcels near it that use groundwater, but this particular parcel doesn't use any groundwater. So our main concern is just helping the irrigation district come up with some data. And did the Turlock Irrigation District know that when they reached out to you, or how did they find that out? Well, the main reason the Turlock Irrigation District reached out to me is they knew that I would probably participate. And the other reason is, is that I had a real good spot on the Highline Canal. They knew that the soil was probably what they were looking for. So that's why they reached out. And then they actually had this test done prior to me participating. I'm guessing that had the test come out differently, I wouldn't have participated. 
Sure. And maybe talk a little bit more about what might give them the idea that you would be interested in participating. Just the relationship we have with our canal tenders and the management, you know, we have a good relationship with them and they know that I'll, I'll do what I can to help them through a project like this. Yeah. Maybe talk more about that relationship. So how have you been able to develop such a good relationship? I think that's uh, useful for other folks in the almond industry who might listen to this. Well, it's funny. The bulk of our parcels are in the Turlock Irrigation District, and we farm basically real close to the Highline Canal. So the Highline Canal is the main artery through our area. And uh, as such, we get to know the canal tenders and the canal riders and uh, the office people because it's part of our environment. I live right next to the Highline Canal. So you know, we interact with them daily as they pass by and they park equipment in our yard and whatnot. It's just a good relationship that we've cultivated over quite a while. Huh. And I don't want to assume, but is this the first year that you've done this? It is, yes. Okay. I believe it's the first year TID has done it also. There's been a lot of talk of it in the past. And one of the things that made it possible for them to do it this year is they've been converting to these automated Rubicon brand gates. In the past, the storm runoff water would have been adjusted through putting boards in the drops and doing things to keep the canal at a level that we could run water out of. Now they can do that online. They can adjust these gates and they have a way to monitor the water I'm using. They have a a Rubicon gate on my parcel so they can tell exactly how much water is in the ditch and how much water we're using. So I think maybe the the information is more available now than it was in the past. Yeah. And did they put those uh, those Rubicon gates in with this in mind or just in general to kind of save on labor and efficiency? They've been putting the gates on the drops on the canal. They've been installing a few every year. They're, they're very pricey, so they do a few every year. And this year they had happened to just put in the one above me. So it worked in my instance, but I think the plan is in the future to have, I don't know if they'll all be that way, but the bulk of their canals with those automated gates. Hmm. And what were your reservations, if anything, when you first kind of heard about potentially doing this? The only reservation I had was starving the trees for oxygen. Oh, we had gotten almost four inches of rain and uh, the ground was pretty wet to begin with. And I was getting ready to flood over the top of that. And I didn't want to end up with the trees getting wet feet or the, or the oxygen being starved to the roots. Yeah. And that makes total sense. And how do you go about calculating how much water to put on without that happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm still not sure of the answer to that. I will say that the soil we have, it drains fantastic. In fact, uh, sustainable conservation said that it had a, an excellent sustainable groundwater banking index, or one of the fastest infiltration rates. And I know that to be a fact from the years that we did flood irrigate, that the water dissipates within a few hours after you've irrigated. So for that reason alone, I felt somewhat confident that we were okay. Right. And and how much water did you end up putting out there? So we put out, I believe it was 14 inches per acre. So over an acre foot on the parcel that we irrigated, which it was a 40 acre parcel. And I think we only did about 10 or 15 acres of it because of the time it took to get the water to spread out. Right. And the acre foot of water that, that you took on, did that happen all at once? And you said it was within a few hours where the the ground had absorbed it. 
uh, or did it happen over multiple irrigations? That's one irrigation. And typically a flood irrigation for me would have been three to four inches of water in the past. So this ground was so dry, even with all the rain, that uh, it took quite a while to get the water to move across it. And you mentioned, you know, this is a lot more water than you would normally put on a, you know, a, a normal flood irrigation at one time. Is there any concern with, you know, water erosion or, or anything like that with putting this much water on at once? No, I don't think so. I will say that last year, our allotment from the irrigation district was 27 inches. And we irrigated all season and harvested a crop with 27 inches on this same parcel. However, <laughs> we put 14 inches on in one irrigation. So normally that would have been, like I said, three to four inches on a flood irrigation. If we had our ground all right, everything was working right. But 14 inches isn't practical for farming in the future. You know, it would only be for uh, groundwater recharge. Yeah. Have you uh, experimented at all with cover crops and if absorption's any better for something like this, if you've got some cover on the ground? We typically always plant cover crops on our new orchards to hold soil down. This particular block, I think, is five years old. So the cover crop has disappeared. But as far as soil erosion, it's a fairly flat piece other than near the valves. There's not much soil erosion from this project. And it sounds like it's unusually well-drained soil. Yeah, and we have a lot of that in our area. It's a soil classification, Delhi sand. I mean, this is Delhi sand that we farm in. Right. Do they have an, a sense of how much water, you know, they've sort of recharged into the groundwater as a result of these efforts? Do you know? I do, actually. I prepared for your call, Tim, a little bit. So I talked to, uh, <laughs> I talked to the people who did the, the monitoring of the groundwater. And it's funny, after four inches of rain and basically about 14 inches of surface water that we put on, so a total of 18 inches, they had wells that came up as much as 30 feet. And most of them came up 20 feet. And these are in a, a groundwater strata of, a, of around... 200 feet plus or minus 100 to 200 feet. So, you know, it's, it's hard to understand how, you know, where all that water comes from, but it was significant, the amount that the wells came up. And can you give us a sense of, you know, what 30 feet means to grow the well 30 feet? Give us a sense of how big of a jump that is. So these are ag wells I'm giving you statistics for, but let's say the ag wells 180 to 200 feet deep. When they start testing this block, the water level was at 125 feet. And then the water level went up to 115 feet. And then the water level went up to 85 feet. And the first test was uh, on the 15th of December, and the last test was on February 1st. So, you know, if you, if you have a hole that's, say, 200 feet deep, and your water is not quite two-thirds of the way down, but it comes up to, you know, under half, that's that's big. <laughs> that's really big. I mean, water doesn't typically move that much in my experience. That's really interesting. So I, I'm curious, you said you didn't have any strong reservations other than the oxygen in the roots. When you heard about this or when you were kind of thinking about how you were going to do it, uh, were there any resources out there that you were able to consult and kind of learn from? Basically, it's the past history we've had with wet years and flood irrigating. But as far as, no, I didn't go to any resources. I've since learned a little bit from sustainable conservation and, and actually from TID themselves as to what goes on there. 
Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about sustainable conservation and, and sort of what they provided to this project? Sure. They're new to me. I just learned about them from this project. And what they did in my case is they came out and they took a pre-flood soil test. And their main reason for that was they were screening for both nitrate, nitrogen, and salinity that uh, they didn't want to flush down into the groundwater. And on our parcel, both samples were, were very low. And that, along with, uh, as I said earlier, an excellent sustainable agricultural groundwater banking index or a fast infiltration rate made our parcel prime for this test. And then can you talk more about the sustainable groundwater banking index? What exactly is that? You kind of talked about some of the factors that go into it as far as, you know, how well does it drain, et cetera. But is this a calculation that is difficult to come by? That's something that um, Rigel Rogers, who's the fellow that was working our case, that's something that he does. I wasn't there to see it done. Actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at their brochure from a sustainable conservation flyer through the Ammon Board on Introduction to Groundwater Recharge. It's a University of California Davis acronym, Soil Agricultural Groundwater Banking Index, or SAGBI. And it's based on five factors, deep percolation, root zone resistance time, topography, chemical limitations, and soil surface condition. So that's, that's part of that SAGBI. Yeah. And from what you've heard, you know, with the irrigation district, obviously, you know, this is a benefit to them and something you all are doing because you have a good working relationship. You know, how are they viewing the economics of this? If you know, I know I'm asking you to speak for them a little bit, but how are they viewing sort of the, the return on investment of doing this? You know, I don't know exactly. I do know that there's no experience like experience. We all learn something through it. I know the irrigation district learned that you know, they do maintenance on their canal system during the off season. So as this rain came and as this water came, they had to postpone maintenance on things. And there were things that they learned through this that they would have to change if they wanted to be prepared for this again in the future. That being said, they were able to deliver the water fine. It's just there was issues with the integrity of some of the banks and things that they weren't sure of because of the off-season that's something that they work on during the off-season and they hadn't gotten a chance to get to that portion yet. So I think they've learned that they're going to have to change their calendar if there's a possibility of doing this next year. Have you heard from them, you know, their interest in doing more of this in the future, expanding the amount of acreage that has this capacity? We've talked a little bit, but I think we're all still digesting what went on this year, both them and us, as to um, how we can make it better in the future and if we're going to participate in the future. I'm assuming we will, but I think we're all kind of still going through the learning process here. Did anything about it surprise you? And, and what questions are you still sort of uh, ruminating on? The thing that surprised me is how much the local wells groundwater came up purely from my neighbor and I doing this sample along with the rain. It came up after we did our, our project. So I'm, I'm sure it was a portion of both the rain and our project, but I was really surprised at how much the groundwater came up. And what was your other question? Would I continue doing it or? Oh, no, just about, you know, you said you're kind of still digesting it. What questions are you still trying to mull over and, and maybe clarify about how this went? So, in the past, this parcel was planted for flood water, so the trees were planted on berms up high, so their roots would dry out faster. And um, 
the ground was was laser leveled so that the water would run faster and everything about it was set up to flood irrigate since our water allotment's been getting shorter you know from 48 to 27 inches on that same parcel we've switched to micro sprinklers and most of our parcels are drip but that particular one is micro sprinklers so i had to put ridges up or temporary borders up and i had to make the water go higher on those borders to get it to move because the ground wasn't level. So there were some things about the orchard that if I was planning on doing it in the future, I have other parcels that, that we're getting ready to replant. And it was never in our wheelhouse to level the ground and be ready to flood again in the future. We were basically led to believe that flooding was a thing of the past and you know water is short in California. So don't waste your time or money preparing to flood. However, if there's a chance that we'll be doing this in the future, the next block we plant, we'll uh, probably laser level it and plant the trees on berms and do things that we could do either drip or flooding. Yeah. So for that, you know, in that example, I imagine it's going to require an extra investment for you to essentially be set up for both drip and flooding. And is that investment in your mind kind of recouped by, you know, recharging the groundwater because you'll use that groundwater? in that parcel or how do you look at that? So that's a good question. The, the way that I can see that we could recoup that investment would be if we could bank that water that we're putting in those parcels that have the ability to recharge and maybe transfer it to the parcels we have that, are, I mean, I'm not talking about out of the area, but very close by. If we could transfer some of that banked water, those parcels that rely more on well water, if we could transfer it there, that would help justify the costs that we're putting into it. It seems like this is something that, uh, and I know you said you're still digesting, but uh, it does seem like something that has worked really well for you. And I wonder what the broader potential is here to really bank some groundwater in years like we just got. We've thought in the past, um, both the irrigation district and certain growers have thought in the past of putting percolation ponds in. Basically, if you have an area that has um, the right soil for it and you can bank water in that area you could put a pond in and keep the pond full and help to recharge the groundwater but in the past there's never been any true benefit other than maybe raising your well on your parcel that you're using it on hopefully in the future we can find a way to monetize or transfer that benefit let's say yeah yeah absolutely it it almost seems like what you hear out there with kind of like especially Midwest farmers kind of selling carbon credits for carbon sequestration. It, it seems kind of similar, although it's, you know, very literally you could see the water <laughs> going into the ground. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a real good uh, analogy against carbon credits. Yes. And what's your sense of how many times in a, a season do you think one block could handle this you know if you wanted 14 inches and it absorbed and you wanted to do it again would you do it again in that same season or is that just kind of too much to ask of the orchard i think the issue wouldn't be whether i would do it again it would be the the time spread in between they would have liked me to do it again about a week after i did it and i was a little hesitant because of all the water i had put on and back to the oxygen issue but if the storms were over a month I would do it again. You know, I just wanted to make sure not to drown these trees for lack of a better word. Sure. Yeah. And do you have any sort of like deep sensors uh, to, to kind of monitor the soil moisture down at the root level? 
I don't. That's actually on my wish list. I do not have any. Okay. Yeah, I could see where that would be helpful as well. Well, this is great, Eric. What about for other growers who might be curious about this? You know, what would be your advice for them and where might they go to inquire about doing something like this? My, my advice to them would be that it's not during a time that you need the water and uh, it's not a convenient time in a rainstorm to be flood irrigating. However, I think the benefits justify the excess work in the, you know, in the environment. And the person that came to me to talk to me about this initially was my canal tender, Byron Smith. And uh, Byron's boss, your manager, Wes Miller at TID, coordinated the whole project. And Wes was fantastic. He, he understood if I couldn't do it, but was helpful and was real good at monitoring exactly what was going on there for both the district and me. Great. So, yeah. So just reach out to your local irrigation district and see if they're offering any, any sort of program like this. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I got to think that this is only going to grow in the future. What, what would be other than mother nature, what, what would be the reasons why this wouldn't expand to more areas that can offer the same type of banking index that you can? Well, I think the reason that people would want to participate is if they had their own wells that they were trying to recharge or get the groundwater up, or if they had a, a reason to personally gain from it, there would be more incentive to that. This is a, an uncommon year. I mean, we in my rain gauge have gotten 13 and a half inches since Thanksgiving, and uh, I, I think our annual rainfall is just over 12 inches. So this is an unusually wet year. We may not have one of these for a few more years, or or we may, I don't know. So, you know, the conditions have to be right. And like I said earlier, if it's pouring down rain and your ground is wet to begin with, and you have to go out and flood irrigate in that rain, sometimes it's hard to talk yourself into that. But I do think that the outcome is worth the effort. And And have you had any neighbors or, you know, other growers in the area come to you and want to hear about your experiences or, or wonder if they should be kind of getting involved? Not too many neighbors, because like I said, you have to have the right setup to do it. Uh, I think other people would like to, but in the past, most of them have changed away from flood irrigating. So that's how the canal tenders and uh, West get involved. They know who can still take the water through that system. I do have neighbors that drive by and look at me quizzically when, when we're flood irrigating in the rain. My answer to them is we're trying to get rid of the squirrels and the gophers, and uh, this is a good way to do it. <laughs> that is funny. Well, yeah, great. I think, Eric, you got to all of my questions. You know, I'm just curious about how you feel about all this. Like, personally speaking, just kind of what are, what's your feeling about doing this and, and uh, about how this went? I mean, to me, the best part that came out of this is seeing those uh, neighbor's ag wells come up, you know, 20 to 30 feet. And for that reason alone, I think it's worth following up in the future and trying to do more of it. My mind goes to the time when we were, you know, over half of us in the area were doing this. And um, at that time, it seemed like the groundwater was still going down, just maybe a little slower than today. So I'm, I'm hoping that these uh, water levels hold, but I'm hesitant to think that they'll last forever this way. Well, thanks very much to Eric Speicher for being so open about his groundwater recharge experiences for today's show. The results they're seeing in the Turlock Irrigation District are definitely encouraging. 
and hopefully the data collected from Eric and others will lead to more widespread and long-term programs to recharge these groundwater resources. Could that be an option for you in your area? Well, that's the focus of today's ABC Update. From research and the experiences of growers like Eric, the Almond Board of California developed an introductory guide to help inform growers who might be considering whether groundwater recharge could be an option for them. Almond Board Principal Analyst Jesse Roseman says their first concern was really the same as Eric's. They had to answer the question of, is this going to be damaging to crops? We really got involved when Don Cameron started doing his work on the Terra Nova Ranch. He identified this as a real opportunity, I think, started pushing the envelope of what was possible, doing this on-farm recharge, what's also called flood mar or flood managed aquifer recharge. And another nonprofit, Sustainable Conservation, was working with him to, to document the practice. And then the Almond Board got involved because there did seem to be this opportunity to use the large amount of acreage that almonds cover to do this on-farm recharge. But the, the question was, is this going to be damaging to crops? So we really looked at the, we did the research in fallow fields in the wintertime when often these flood flows are available. And bottom line, we didn't see any negative impacts, whether it was to root growth or yield. So once we had those research results in hand, we took them and turned them around and developed a groundwater recharge guide, an introductory guide for growers that might be considering doing this. Roseman says the guide is helpful to answer some of the basic questions about whether groundwater recharge might be a fit for your orchard and to provide some considerations about how the process might impact your operation. The guide is organized around four main questions. Do you have access to excess water? And that's going to be a question either for your irrigation district or possibly your groundwater sustainability agency or GSA. Do you have the right soil types on your farm? to really promote recharge, and generally those are well-drained soils, sandy soils. Then thinking about what types of recharge are there available. So not only on-farm flooding of orchards, but also smaller recharge basins. If you uh, have a portion of your field that might be sandier, or if you have to consolidate the irrigated footprint of a given ranch, given some of those groundwater pumping restrictions or surface water supply cutbacks that we've seen during the drought, installing smaller recharge basins might be a good option. And then lastly, if you do one of those, is that going to impact your operation? How is that going to impact your operation? Because there are things you definitely will need to do in the wintertime in your orchard. And depending on when you want to get those done, if the field's wet, those might not be possible. So you really got to look at these four main questions and answer them for yourself. That's really the, how the guide is organized. And then there are also other considerations, whether it's fungal diseases, because anytime you're increasing humidity, that, that may be a concern. There are water quality concerns. You wouldn't want to have just applied nitrates. 
So the guide really, I think, takes a grower from this beginning idea of what is recharge and then ultimately how do you think through does it is it going to work for your operation if this is something you think you might be interested in learning more about you can access that free guide right now at almonds.com forward slash grower tools that's a great first place to start along with communicating with your local irrigation district read it through and i think you'll have a much better understanding of the role that you as a grower can play in recharging groundwater, helping with flood management, improving drinking water, and ultimately improving water supply reliability on your farm. One other step in addition to reading the guide that growers will want to take is to contact their irrigation district and ask for that first question in the guide, do they have extra surface water supply for the purpose of recharge coming this spring. And that could be whether you've got a, a field that you've taken out of production where you could build temporary berms, or even if, if your fields are already set up for flood irrigation, you could probably do it without much in the way of changes. So contact your local irrigation districts. We know the Sierra snowpack in the beginning of February is at over 200%. So we do expect these spring flows. And we know that a lot of opportunities for recharge were missed during a lot of these January storms. So let's be prepared when the spring snowmelt starts happening and growers with land, if it's appropriate and your irrigation district has water, make maximum use of this water and, and apply it to fields. Again, to start that preparation process, the guide can be found at almonds.com forward slash grower tools. I'll link to that in the show notes as well, so you can click there easily if you're driving or otherwise preoccupied. Thanks so much to Jesse Roseman for providing today's ABC update and to the Almond Board for continuing to provide these data-backed resources. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing voices of industry leaders, people like Eric Speicher, may have sparked a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on the podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to at least one other person in the industry. And we can all share in this almond journey together.